<laughs> this is Going Boldly, the podcast. Here's your host, Russ the Big Guy. Hi, it is Russ the Big Guy. I'm a lifelong entrepreneur who is very familiar with the struggles and successes related to running a business. I know it is definitely worth the struggle. The freedom and unlimited potential keep me moving forward, fueled by my why. Aligned with that is my desire to share with you, the entrepreneur and aspiring business owner, entertainment, information, inspiration, and even transformation into an even more amazing entrepreneur and human. To those ends, please enjoy this episode of Going Boldly. Hey, it's Russ, and this is going to be a really exciting episode. We are right on the verge of a post-pandemic right now. This global pandemic has wreaked havoc on families, on economies. It has also provided unprecedented opportunity for many. You have probably listened to my interview with Vince Kedlubek, who is one of the directors of Meow Wolf, and how they have created some amazing, interactive, immersive destinations, I guess would be the best way to describe it. And also Judy Julin, who has been working for the past 30 years to change our educational system and make it user-friendly and make it targeted for uh, each individual. Those are amazing interviews. And today, we have somebody who is going to be talking about money and uh, economies. And I want you to hang in there if when you, people start talking about financial things that your mind glosses over because Joel has a great sense of humor and he's going to put this in terms that all of us can understand. Please welcome Joel Hadroff. Hey, Joel. Hey, Russ. Thanks very much. It's uh, <laughs> exciting to be on the show. Yeah, thank you. Now, I think in your own words, you were issued the first U.S. patent for dual currency uh, let's see, pricing, accounting, and transaction settlement system for, Correct. Ra- for rapid inclusion and sustainable local to global economic development. That is a mouthful. Let me just tell you the one thing that I got out of it that, that really <laughs> caught my attention, sustainable. And the reason, I, the reason I say that is because I'm very optimistic about our country and the possibilities and the opportunities in the world. I'm, all, I'm the not even the glass is half full guy. I'm the glass is overflowing guy. But one of the things that's painfully obvious to me is at some point our economy either has to change, at least for this in this country, or it's going to crash. It's going to implode. It doesn't seem like what we're doing is sustainable. And if I look around other countries and history, the little bit I know about history, it seems like some of the great empires crashed. And I'm wondering if uh, we're on the same trajectory. Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm not uh, at all a gloom or doom guy. I don't think we have to crash at all. But I want to first point out that we've had many crashes. The 1929 stock market crash and in uh, most of our lifetimes, the 2008 housing bond market crash. So So the crash is is, uh, almost inevitable. In fact, the economy went in the toilet over COVID and it actually didn't need to. Uh, We could have had a more intelligent response than a knee-jerk reaction to lay everybody off. And uh, because people didn't lose their need for any of the stuff that we normally produce and sell, we just 
you know, pulled back for a while. And uh, that doesn't have to cause the economy to crash. In fact, I want to frame this whole conversation by saying everything that produces wealth, technology, global economic infrastructure, human skill, knowledge, and creativity, and our ability to use infinite and free renewable resources, solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, those things are steadily improving day in and day out. They never crash. So there's something broken about how money produces and distributes the wealth of this country that is simply uh, unreliable. And I'll go more deeply into that. I want to go all the way back to your remark on the patents. Uh, When we founded this company in 1993, Uh, the first version of it, actually, Uh, we applied for patents not to be greedy and hog everything that came from this innovation, but simply to make an impression on investors that they could make a profit and that all companies participating in it could make a profit. That's what dual currency means. Enough dollars or cash in the deal in every transaction to work for merchants and financial services and investors, and enough new money in every deal to build a bridge from where this economy's been stuck in uh, growth, uh, in inequality here and around the world, and lack of sustainability to uh, an economy that raises everyone up together without damaging the environment. So that was the original idea. The patents uh, were filed for in ninety. Four issued in 97, and anybody who knows the math on patents expired in 2014. But we're still trying to uh, introduce this to the world so that the world can benefit, uh, even though the patents are expired. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, or in the introduction, this is a time when new ideas, um, or even uh, let's, not, let's just say other ideas, maybe they were older ideas, um, but may become possible. I think it's a time when people are opening their minds to new ways of thinking, right? To new paradigms, to new new everything, really, for many people. Um, so right now we're talking about all these things, and for our listeners, they have no idea, like, what <laughs> they probably have no idea what we're talking about. So let's take an average person, right, how they would go about their life, or an average business owner, entrepreneurs, aspiring business owners, maybe maybe current business owners. And can we, can we walk somebody through, like, first of all, like yeah. what, what problem is this solving? Why should they care? I, yeah. imag- I imagine when you started, you were thinking maybe it was going to be like a card, like a credit card, but now maybe it's going to be digital. Would I be right about that? Or am I too far Absolutely. ahead? Absolutely. In okay. fact, uh, it's compatible with every kind of technology out there, but mobile okay. apps, social media, and loyalty rewards are probably the best examples of why this can go out there and scale. And we'll talk a little bit maybe towards the end about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and the blockchain and why that's an option, but not necessarily the best option. All right. Let's start with the very, very basics. Everybody listening is is familiar with cash. They're They're familiar with the idea of bartering reciprocal bartering, like one person to another, you, you each have something the other person wants. Um, they, they may not be, they may not be familiar with non-reciprocal. So that would be an example of being in a, a trade group or a trade exchange group with sure. where you could, right? So they, they're familiar with credit cards. 
And now, uh, unless you're an older boomer and just have never even purchased a computer, <laughs> and I know and believe I know one, a guy I went to high school with, never bought a computer. Um, so he has no clue what's going on anywhere except in his, you know, <laughs> 30 feet from him. Um, <laughs> sure. Let's, so let's, so, let they, me, so let most people set. do know digital. I would say I would say the majority yeah. of people are familiar with digital, how to make a digital purchase, even now using a smartphone to make a purchase, you know, just even just tapping it. You a, bet. All right. So, you bet. All right. So, so so we got an average person or a business owner. You know, what's the problem? What's it solving? How are they doing it? Like, how does it actually work? Sure. Well, the problem isn't with our ability to do transactions. This country can do can transact anything. The problem is there's a gap between the available purchasing power and the available productive capacity. And what that means is merchants want to sell more of almost everything. Everywhere you look before COVID, we had empty college desks, empty airline seats, empty restaurant tables, empty movie theater seats. The list goes on and on of where there's excess capacity, where merchants want to sell more and where people want to buy those very goods and services but lack the purchasing power. But that makes no sense because money was invented to match buyers and sellers. Best example, food is an abundant renewable resource. The grocery aisles are mostly empty not of goods, not of products and services, but of customers. Most hours during the week, there's a rush on the weekends, there's a rush after work, but uh, people want more food here and around the world. Uh, Global agribusiness is one of the most powerful industries on the planet. They'd love to sell more food. All that's missing is money and money was invented to match buyers and sellers. So the problem we're trying to solve is the gap between what we know how to produce and what people can afford to buy the way we currently do win-lose competition over money. And I'll drill down on that phrase, win-lose competition over money later, because some people just assume the system's win-win. I don't know how they get away with that in their own minds or in the world, but uh, it's definitely not win-win. One very quick example, and then I'll walk you through a transaction, Russ. Yeah. One very quick example is that a decade ago, when mobile apps and social media had a fraction of the penetration into the economy that they have today, the sharing economy in a matter of three years, building their new technology every step of the way, created millions of jobs and billions of dollars of new wealth three years. Now, was that win-win? Obviously not, because hotels, motels, and their employees took the hit from Airbnb. Cab drivers, limo drivers, and their companies took the hit from Uber and Lyft. So just as I said before, whereas advances in technology and infrastructure and human skill, knowledge, and creativity should be lifting people up day after day, we see the standard of living and quality of life for individuals, families, and communities here and around the world going up and down with the fortunes of the economy makes no sense for us. Right. So what the example that you just gave is very easy to understand, right? So, uh, advancements, um, s- s- people are selling through, through their apps. So there's, uh, that's capitalism right there. Right. And unfortunately there are losers in that equation and you outlined right, and, that. And ca- 
we're not anti-capitalism. Capitalism is amazingly productive. We're yeah. actually fitting the historic role of the system being able to improve decade after decade. In fact, let me say one more thing and then let's walk through a transaction. Okay. My field, which isn't even a field of economics that I call money innovation, is part and parcel of all economic history and all economic paradigm shifts, Russ. And it's always technology driven, just like it is in this case. So we went from bartering to gold coins based yeah. on smelting right. and metal casting. We went from gold coins to paper currency based on printing and paper making. We went from paper currency to credit cards and e-commerce based on computers and the internet and plastics. And so this is just one more innovation. I'm going to say one technical thing that only economists would understand, except they don't understand it. And that's why we're stuck. You can't get the definition of money today is a unit of measure, a unit of exchange and a store of value. Now, let's just look at unit of measure and unit of exchange. A unit of measure is only a symbol. You can't lend somebody an inch and expect back an inch and a half. You can't speculate in the number nine and hope to make a killing in the market with hundreds of number nines or maybe even get returns of uh, the number 13. All of that is absurd in the world of symbols. So when you combine a symbol with a unit of exchange, you can't exchange symbols, they just live in the commons. And exchange is something you hand back and forth. So it descended from barter and gold coins, which you could hand back and forth. We're handing paper and electronic numbers and computers back and forth as if they're still scarce things. In other words, the token nature of money is in conflict with the symbolic unit of measure nature of money. And anybody who gets a hold of me through my LinkedIn uh, uh, site, Joel Hodroff, J-O-E-L-H-O-D-R-O-F-F, is welcome to a white paper, or you can Google it up, a white paper that'll go, drill down on the difference between a unit of exchange and a unit of measure. All right, so let's... Russ, can, can I yeah. walk you through a transaction? Yeah, go ahead. Well, let's just say, you know, you're an average guy working an average job. First of all, you're still working 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week in many cases, even though technology should have been shortening the work week continuously for everyone. Should have along been. With, uh, yeah. Along with raising the standard of living and quality of life across the board and reducing damage to the environment. But you're working this job and let's say you're given an allowance to the kids, but suddenly the kids want a little more purchasing power than, than you're ready to give them. What if they went out and did one of a few things? Because whereas loyalty rewards only reward consumer spending yeah. so that whoever has the most money now gets the most rewards, we've yeah. developed, we've designed a system to reward many other things that society values, community volunteerism, youth academic performance, uh, youth service learning, which is a way to go out into the community on the job or in a community organization and learn. And, and in our case, it's learn and earn. So what we'll call community service dollars or ledger dollars throughout this uh, podcast today, a young person could volunteer, they could mentor younger people, they could get credit for improving their grade scores. So many things are rewardable, and I'll mention a couple others that are for adults as well. 
um, stay-at-home moms and dads are doing the exact same work that people are getting paid for in the cash economy, cooking, cleaning, shopping, laundry, chauffeuring, childcare, and senior care. How come half the population has to do it at home for free while the other half is doing it in the cash economy? And uh, I'll jump ahead and say this is not uh, a cash government dole. This is actually uh, new money being backed by the excess productive capacity of society, what I mentioned before, empty restaurant tables, empty airline seats, empty college desks. People don't want numbers and computers. They want the stuff. And so wellness activity, green activity, these are all things we value. Driving kids to the doctor when their parents are tied up at work. There's lots of rewardable stuff and there's lots of stuff to reward them with. So now, uh, let's say... Uh, a volunteer is earning 20 community service dollars an hour. Why would we start there? Because a low fighting over the minimum wage is ridiculous in the 21st century. And having a minimum wage, you know, uh, what's exciting about our model is it doesn't take taxes or debt. Um, if people put in their empty restaurant tables, their empty college desks, not people, companies and organizations, they're empty movie theater seats, et cetera, then we can give raises to everyone's employees. We can raise the minimum wage by raising it out of excess capacity and these new forms of money, ledger dollars, community service dollars. So now let's say your kids, we'll call them Jack and Cindy, uh, volunteer two hours, got 40 community service dollars each in their accounts. Now, it's just an account exactly like a dollar account, only it's not dollars. So young people can easily have these accounts as well as adults. You just sign up for an account through the website. Now, let's say that Jack goes to a a restaurant and a $20 meal is now 12 cash and eight community service dollars. Why is that a win-win-win? for Jack, the restaurant, and the community. Well, $12 out of a $20 meal for the restaurant is just like two-for-one dining, senior discounts, student discounts, happy hour. The the merchant makes a profit, in fact, a much better profit than they might have made from Groupon. And then, um, let's say Jack saves money, the restaurant makes a profit, The financial services industry gets a transaction fee, just like they do with Visa out of the cash side of the transaction. And then the community got extended volunteerism. Community organizations got a recruitment and retention tool for volunteers. Now, let's say Cindy goes to the YWCA where she's the family has a membership and she wants to bring a guest and an off hours pass is $20. But in the case of the Y, it might be six cash and 14 community service dollars. How come? Because what's called the marginal cost of production or off hours at the Y just costs a hot shower and a towel. So six cash, the Y is making as much money off of its sale of six and 14 community service dollars as the restaurant is 12 cash and eight community service dollars. It's all processed just like a a traditional transaction. At first, there'll probably be a limited number of businesses accepting dual currency transactions. But at first, with credit cards, there were a limited number of merchants accepting credit cards. 
and then we grow from there. I used to be on a trade exchange with one of my other businesses. And for a small business, I was a sole proprietor. I had one, well, I had one part-time office manager. I did everything else. And I thought it was going to be a great idea to be in this trade exchange because it opened me up to some credit and all these possible vendors from yeah. whom I could purchase and trade with my products. And I'd essentially be trading my labor uh, was my thought. The problem that I ran into with it was there was a cash fee every time I spent my trade dollars. I had to pay the barter company, the trade exchange, I had to pay them a percentage in cash. And for the type of business that I had, it was way too expensive. Right. And, you know, uh, a lot of times the the barter exchanges are sort of the cast-offs. Um, they're not filled with all the regular retail products that people want. They're a very, very small subset of the economy. And so we very specifically designed this so that it isn't just merchants trading with each other, but it is the customers. Okay, let me back up. There's two kinds of barter. There's right. individual to individual, which usually takes place in the uh, gray or underground economy. Yeah. Um, uh, watch my kids. I'll give you vegetables from my garden. Fix my car. I'll paint your house. Those right. are trades. Right. And then there's business to business. And it's in the billions of dollars, literally, hotels trade empty rooms, airlines trade empty seats, the media trades in the trillions. Right. And none of them generally buy a fleet of cars because auto executives need motel stays, airline flights, and advertising. So there's, now that's generally above ground and you have to pay taxes on it. Yeah. Now what we've invented is a form of B to C because you could normally never go down to the Home Depot with a basket of vegetables and try to get a saw, right, Russ? That's right. But if you monetize all sides of the transaction, which is exactly what was in the patents and exactly what dual currency means, you could sell your vegetables anywhere in the network and you could take your community service dollars to stretch your cash at any participating merchant. And then it's a very, it's not a big fee because the volume is at the level of the volume of the economy as a whole. Big fees come from trying to make it off a small amount of volume. And we have, you know, fractional fees, even smaller than Visa. That help? Yeah. I'm trying to ask questions for myself and also ones that the listener might have as they're listening to this. The examples are, are very helpful, I think. And I, wa I want to give another example. I started out saying if, you know, we're so confused about money and wealth that we can't see how the way we do money is undermining the distribution of wealth. So again, well, I think it's, wealth, look, I think it's pretty obvious, Joel, right now to anybody who's paying attention that they're, you know, the middle class is disappearing and the money is, the money is floating to the top like cream. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, most of us are not up there. And even the people that used to have money aren't even up there in the top you know, half a 1% anymore. I mean, there, there's outrageous, obscene profits. And I don't, uh, I don't suggest that anyone should not be able to make as much money as they want. I don't think that's a problem, but that's when good, you're, cause that's a hard sell in, in this country, right? I know, I know. The but, government should regulate that kind of thing. Well, so no, actually yeah. it's Russ, it's a perfect thing to bring up because it's all about the confusion between money and wealth. And I want to say how. Okay. What the rich have is a big number under their name called a bank account or a stock ledger. Now, yeah. 
There isn't a rich family alive on the planet, Russ, that can eat enough food to cause others to go hungry, that can live in a big enough house to cause others to be homeless, that can consume enough education or health care for anyone to go without. So when some people are ragging on the rich and blaming them for the problems, they're actually part of the confusion over money and wealth. And so we have designed a money to go beyond the level of wealth distribution. What's the wealth? The wealth is the stuff. There's no shortage of stuff. There's just a shortage of money. And you know what? This is the perfect place for me to insert the difference between token politics, I mean, token economics and ledger economics. And I'm not talking about blockchain because that's and cryptocurrency because crypto is just another token riding on a different ledger. So the dollar's a token that rides on the automated clearinghouse system of the banks or the visa system of the banks. And uh, cryptocurrencies in general are have token nature. Now, how do we know that? Because when you can speculate with something, it's a token. It's not just a unit of measure and a symbol. If you can hoard something, it's a token. It's not just a unit of measure and a symbol. So um, let's look at the implications of that. We say, uh, and much of this comes from uh, historically having read Walden II by B.F. Skinner and chapter eight is all about their ledger currency, which they happen to call labor credits, which was an hour of labor captured in a ledger. You can't have a shortage of ledger entries the way you have a shortage of money. Uh, you can't hoard ledger entries. You can't have inflation and recession with ledger entries. You can't have speculation with ledger entries. These are all products of token money because tokens can have money flight from communities. Tokens can be hoarded. Tokens that just like the gold that they descended from, but it's ridiculous to have those properties attached to electronic debits and credits in computers, but in fact we do. So we are setting up a parallel integrated, um, denominated in dollars, as you heard during my two examples, 12 cash and eight community service dollars, uh, each community service dollars equals a dollar, and uh, six cash, and 14 community service dollars for off hours at a fitness club. So think about this. Ledgers don't crash. Ledgers don't have inflation and recession. Ledgers don't have uh, entries that can be hoarded. Ledgers aren't subject to politics. Ledgers could, could get us out of every economic dilemma overnight. And uh, ledgers are obviously used across the world. Um, Let's see what kind of questions you have from that, because then I'm going to talk a little bit about how similar this is to the loyalty rewards industry, although we reward more than consumer spending and therefore we can raise everybody up. Why would the government allow this to exist? Because it's effectively reducing the amount of sales tax they might collect. So whatever municipality or government organization is collecting sales tax, perfect, it, which is going to be in cash, they're not going to want Let ledgers. Ledger let's entries. start. Let's start there. Um, okay. Number one, 
the it doesn't matter if the government wants it or not because this is a business model in a free enterprise system and later we'll talk about how this gets us beyond left versus right and everybody could be pushing in the same direction yeah. but you see all the things that the government wants to raise taxes for can be more efficiently done with the sharing of the excess capacity all across the economy. So think about this, food, abundant renewable resource. What do we do to help people who need food? Well, we build a giant uh, welfare bureaucracy, food stamp bureaucracy, and food shelf bureaucracy. So in other words, the government's in there competing with grocery stores and restaurants. Wouldn't it be much more simple and effective? And then people in government jobs could go out and do more productive things. This is one reason it would work for conservatives. But the reason it would work for liberals and radicals is this isn't another trickle-down model. We're talking about the immediate transfer of available wealth from where it exists to where it's needed. And because of dual currency pricing at a profit for merchants. So that's exactly why merchants would participate and the government would say, oh my God, we don't need a fraction of the taxes we've been levying and we can use our tax dollars to, you know, uh, rapidly expand solar energy. Some people are talking about a Green New Deal. I don't think we need the government to pay for anything once we have this system, but um, it might as well let this system create a more level economic playing field and close disparities overnight instead of through trickle down. If you could see my arms right now, they're spread wide. It takes this huge amount, this huge percentage of the available cash to close disparities. And now my fingers are showing a tiny, it takes a tiny percentage of the available productive capacity. So again, I'll right, explain be, so let me, why this let me is jump beyond in. left all right. Left and right. All right. Go so ahead. Well, let me just jump in so I can understand and for practical purposes, like how this this would this one example would work. So instead of someone getting an EBT card where they could go get food that was paid for by uh, through all of our taxes that we paid, would they be getting ledger credits because the government took ledger credits as part of their sales tax? Is that what, or part of the taxes? Is that what you're saying? Okay, uh, you know, I'm going to use a metaphor and then I'm going to answer your question. If we were living under kings and queens, yeah, uh, which the changes were enormous, it was just the slogans down with the king, no taxation without representation and liberty and equality for all that move the masses into action. So it's actually going to be what we call a minimum viable product and early adopters that get it rolling. But the changes, you know, nobody under kings and queens by and large would have understand constitution, bill of rights, yeah. uh, property rights, um, balance of powers, what balance between what? Oh, uh, legislative, judicial. Okay, so now it's the same thing, like trying to understand this system under gold coins or even under today's system is a little bit hard because of what we're used to. Yeah. So now, rather than ditching the EBT card, we're going to ride right on top of it until it becomes obsolete. So we're just going to add community service dollars. And back in the 90s, when there wasn't even the technology to scale this, but when we had a pilot uh, with in Minnesota, Hennepin County, the Mall of America, biggest mall in the world, the Minneapolis Public Schools, we uh, got the state of Minnesota to pass uh, a, a ruling that people could earn community service dollars 
without it impacting their welfare check. So in other words, we're not pulling the rug out from under anybody, because why should we? There's more wealth day in and day out. There's just confusion over money and wealth. And there's all kinds of, you know, business failures and, and uh, uh, outsourcing and technology, creating a loss of jobs or mergers and acquisitions. And those are all a loss of paychecks, but they're not a loss of productive capacity. So waking people up to the fact that the quality of life should be advancing, working hours should be shortening, damage to the environment should be lessening. The fact that none of that's happening means we have to think outside the box about money, economics, and commerce. And um, a little bit later, I'm going to talk about our four economic sectors and why none of them are thinking outside the box and why we don't seem to be able to solve these age-old problems when the solution is at our fingertips. So what I assert Russ, is that modern business knows how to build anything. It doesn't know what to build to solve these historic economic problems. Well, I agree with that. That makes perfect sense. Um, one of the things that I, I keep coming back to in my own mind, and I think from our, even our initial conversation, is that anytime anybody <laughs> suggests any kind of a change, especially if it's a radical change, there are people and organizations in power who's who see it as a, a challenge to their you know their interests, and so who would oppose it at every possible turn. Sure. So, what's the workaround for that? You want to know? Yeah, I'm assuming that those uh, organizations and people exist, even though. So, when something comes into the world as what's called a disruptive business model, yeah. So CDs replaced eight-track tapes, which, uh, well, actually, it was cassettes replaced eight-track tapes, CDs replaced uh, yeah. uh, cassettes, yep. and now streaming is replacing uh, right. CDs. You but, know, it but doesn't it didn't, matter. It, it didn't destroy the music industry until until the disruption was, um, was, was the f- free music digitally. Well, even then, I mean, the music industry is far from destroyed. Um, We just have more and more ways to distribute things cheaper and cheaper. And what nobody is paying attention to is when things are cheaper and cheaper, you have disruptions in the economy. Go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. People lost their traditional jobs on the land. They didn't have the skills right away for the industrial economy. The first organizations of the industrial economy were sweatshops, and yet um, no wealth was lost. We lost no ability to produce agriculture, and we added industry to it. So why did anyone have to suffer? Because when you filter anything through win-lose competition over money, some people are making it while other people aren't. So with all these advances in technology, the amount of available productive capacity has swelled beyond anybody's imagination, but filtered through win-lose competition over money. We're used to thinking, oh, somebody lost their job. It's because they didn't have the right skills. Well, look at this. (laughs) Two companies merge, two nonprofits merge, uh, two public uh, colleges or hospitals merge. Now, Every this is public, private, and nonprofit. All these sectors work exactly the same way. Everybody before the merger had exactly the same skills. So half the people lose their jobs and they're economically insecure. Their families are suffering. The other half are working longer and harder 
and looking over their shoulder for their pink slips. So they're completely stressed out. That's not only win-lose economics, that's lose-lose economics. Who says we can't take all those people and share the available work by shortening working hours and give them a raise in uh, community service dollars or ledger dollars to make up for any lost cash? You see, when businesses are trying to survive or profit by lowering labor costs and and lowering the amount of paychecks they give out, that's just part of a win-lose situation. It could be win-win because excess productive capacity can make up for those lost wages. Same with outsourcing. We didn't lose productive capacity. We lost paychecks. Same with advances in technology. We gained productive capacity, but we lost paychecks. This is the blind spot in economics, the confusion over money and wealth, that wealth is always advancing and money is giving us every manner of problem. Now, it is doing amazing things. Anybody who thinks that free enterprise capitalism is not producing massive wealth is just out to lunch. Now, it's not producing it all sustainably, and it's certainly not producing it equitably. All right, but this is not something I've really thought about before until I met you. And that was that was so uh, recent that I haven't had time to chew on a lot of this stuff. But I got it. Let me ask you, let me ask you one more thing before you, before you move on. Okay. All right, simple and dumb question. Where do the community service dollars originate from? So perfect. It's not a dumb question. If we look at our, if we look at how our money system is supposed to work, each dollar is supposed to be backed by something tangible. Originally, I guess gold, right? Yeah. Well, that's not true anymore. Now it's backed by right nothing. It's backed by nothing. Which we we could get in. We could get into that. It's it's backed by debt and the government's promise to issue more money if there's a problem with the money. That's not a strong backing. No, and I think that you know we've had periods of inflation and currently. You know, um, let's see, for the the simplest thing um, that people might know, the Happy Meal that I used that the, they used to advertise that you'd get change back from your dollar is now six bucks or whatever, <laughs> right? So, yeah. and that, that was in my lifetime, probably, I don't know, 70s, let's say. C- right? Countless examples. Yeah, yes. sure. So people like know inflation uh, is happening. And, you know, in the worst cases where, cr- where countries crashed, everybody's heard the story of having to have literally have a wheelbarrow full of paper currency to buy a loaf of bread. Remember, ledgers don't suffer inflation and recession. That's completely. Okay. Well, that's kind uh, of what I'm at. That's kind of where I'm going with this. I want to ask you. Related. So, yeah, so right. So the, where this ledger lives and, and who runs it. You right. Ready? Do we, do we need an original uh, amount of ledger credits to start with or not? Like how does that, okay. how does that work? All right. So first of all, we're consulting to the world. We're not building and owning this system. We're consulting to the world to get it built. Why? Because it's going to be like the internet of the new economy. Who owns the internet? Nobody. It actually lives in the commons. Who runs the internet? Nobody. It's run by its original protocol. So an organization that can be built, and, and by the way, the internet doesn't crash. You know, somebody's computer might crash, but the internet doesn't crash, just like the visa system doesn't crash. So ledgers don't crash, economies crash. Now, let's think about if we built an economy 
uh, an extension on the existing economy. Remember, we're not replacing the dollar. The dollar's the coin of the realm. The dollar is what everybody's depending on. But the dollar's been particularly unstable and unreliable over the years. And we see, you know, companies crashing even as people need their product and service. The thing gets heated up and the thing has a meltdown. Now, yeah. if we were to build a uh, extension on the economy like the internet, then the protocol that we're going to propose and design with our partners is going to measure available capacity, match it against unmet need, and you'll see that we're overbuilt to meet all need on the planet, and we will eventually begin downsizing, but without taking away people's jobs or livelihoods. So again, what does that mean? Measuring the available capacity is simple. Uh, economists don't measure excess capacity. They just rely on supply and demand to set things straight. But why don't they? Is because in our culture, if a company has excess capacity, it's blamed on operator error. The idea is you overproduced or you undermarketed your capacity. But yes. you see, it's not that at all. In any industry, if somebody's doing tremendously well, 5, 10, 15, 20 competitors jump in, and except with rare exceptions like Airbnb, Uber, uh, Google, uh, you get so much competition that pretty soon, and that's the nature of capitalist competitive win-lose growth, is pretty soon every, you have market saturation, you have downward pressure on market share and on prices and on profits and on wages. And if profits and wages are the way that people go out and enjoy a piece of the pie, it does not matter how much you grow this economy, you have people losing out and yeah. you have merchants with lost business opportunities because people don't have the purchasing power. And let me show you how dramatic it is. The 1929 stock market crash uh, showed us that free enterprise had these built-in problems. And then we had a decade of depression where nobody could solve this thing. And if you want to know how crazy it is, just picture this. Nobody lost their skills. People lost their jobs. We had factories standing idle where the day before people had perfect skills. There uh, were... Uh, crops piled up in the field and milk being dumped on the ground because nobody had the money to purchase it. If, if that doesn't show us that it's a money issue and not a productive capacity issue, nothing will. So anybody who denies that, the free enterprise system showed that it has a flaw in the 1929 stock market crash. So with a decade of depression and some government programs, but none of that solved for the brokenness in the free enterprise system, suddenly it looked like government spending on the war did two things. It swelled the size and role of the government and it uh, it put everybody back to work and we won the war. Well, I'm gonna tell you just as a slight detour, but then I'm gonna go on to, to how this problem in the economy is carried forward despite uh, the private sector and the public sector. But, uh, we've had massive war and massive government spending ever since World War II, and it's never had the outcome of full employment and a big post-World War II boom or rise in the quality of life. And remember, we had women and 
people of color go straight into industrial jobs and do on the job training. We didn't spend a year or two or three or four sending people to trade school or etiquette school. So this lack of skills argument is another huge blind spot in economics. People don't lack the skills to hang on to the jobs they had or to go into new jobs. Businesses lack the capital to put everybody in this country to work. And look how bad it is. Not only does business lack the capital, government can't put everybody back to work. The nonprofit sector comes along. It's also now a trillion dollar sector after the public and the uh, private sectors. It can't get everybody back to work. It crashes along with everybody else. And now we have the social impact investing sector, which is supposed to be the new entrepreneurial way to solve all these problems. It's not, none of this is getting to the root of the problem. None of this is getting to the root of scarce token money being unavailable, being subject to inflation and recession, uh, being subject to crashes, being subject to political fighting. I agree with everything you said, except you said we did not have a post-World War II economic boom. Did you say that? No, no. I said, I said it wasn't based on government spending on the war because, well, it was, but that's, it, that's not a consistent solution. No. The economy goes up and down while we have plenty of government spending and plenty of war. Yeah. So what we're looking for is a solution okay. that keeps people employed without needing to go to war. And okay. remember, my, my premise was, I know this, I'm covering a lot of ground fast. Yeah, that's okay. But we went from the depths yeah. of the depression to full war production in 18 months. Crazy, right? And insane. And when people say, well, that's because of government spending on the war, I simply argue, no, we've had massive government spending and we've had massive war since then, and it hasn't done it. So what was it then? Well, number one, it was a common vision. Yeah, We agreed to go to war. And could we have a common vision if we had a better vision of uh, win-win economic yes. development? We, right. we could make that a common vision along with um, closing disparities and along with uh, less damage to the environment. Number two, we had a new funding source. It happened to be the government, but you see, we've invented a new funding source. That's what's really exciting. And it's a funding source that is business-led, market-based, and profit-driven, but it's also equitable and it's also sustainable. And number three, we had what's called a mobilization. And this is worth taking a look at, because if we had met COVID with a mobilization, as opposed to everyday business as usual, and the first responders being overrun and worn out, and the hospitals being overrun and worn out, here's what it could have looked like. Our youth, our college students, who were the least vulnerable to COVID, could have mobilized and immediately, A, Um, distributed information and masks door to door to every single community in the country, B, built uh, clinics and substations in every community, and then they could have been uh, apprentices to first responders in healthcare, first responders uh, in education. (laughs) People could have earned community service dollars going into homes, uh, young people, and helping uh, overworked families with these stay-at-home kids 
and their educational needs. I mean, it is just so insane to let everybody sit around struggling and suffering when in fact, what did a mobilization teach us during World War II? It taught us that everybody's got some level of skill. Some people planted victory gardens. Some people collected scrap metal. Somebody had to watch the kids when women were taking over industrial jobs. I mean, a mobilization is so different than everyday business as usual. Imagine if for World War II, we had put out a bunch of RFPs, requests for proposals. We'd taken six months to get back the good <laughs> ones. We'd taken a year to pilot, you know, what will tanks look like? What will yeah. uh, airplanes look like? And then we would have taken uh, the time to build 10 competing factories instead of three factories, each running three shifts. The way we do things today with windless competition over money is the exact opposite of a mobilization of human and industrial and technological resources. So we are living in this inherited win-lose competition over money model that tomorrow we could have a common vision, a new funding source and a mobilization to heal the planet. And, you know, yeah. a lot of people, I think that was a, with this. Let me jump, let ahead. me just jump in here because you're on a, you're yeah. on a roll, but I, I think that, um, I think that that was a really good example uh, where someone can really understand, you know, the difference there. Um, and, and so there were forces at work that didn't allow that mobilization. There were deniers. There were people who saying, well, it's not worse than a regular flu. There were people who were going to lose money if they shut down the economy. So there were a lot of conflicting forces, right? There wasn't a common will. There was no common vision, but more yeah. importantly, there was no new funding source. We were dependent on the way the dollars, right. you know, employers... Let's let's just take restaurants as a simple example. They saw customers staying away and they immediately had to lay off their employees. Yeah. But we simply could have gone to, you know, it took us a, a small amount of time. But, you know, uh, at home delivery became the overnight alternative. Yeah. But that, you know, we had already taken the hit in terms of millions yeah. and millions and millions of jobs. Let me go back to an, uh, one of my earlier questions, and you and <laughs> I'm I'm feeling pretty ignorant of, right now, but I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to be very vulnerable, and you know, this is I'm not going to edit this out, but uh, you know, for the benefit of listeners, for the benefit of this concept, I'm just going to just be dumb. So one of my questions that I don't think you answered was, and maybe you did, do we need to have a a somehow backed ledger entry like we have, like we should have a gold backed dollar? And if not, how is it going to be better than just we're printing money? Right. So I mean, are the two comparable in that regard or not? Like I have um, a warehouse full of extra things that I can't produce and I'm willing to take service dollars for them. And that's just, that's how we start or or like, where are the service dollars? Where do they come from? Does everybody get 10? Great. You know what? How do we do this? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So number one, it's not a dumb question. If someone's going to invent credit cards at e-commerce, they better have a good explanation for how it's going to work, even if it's going to take a few decades to go mainstream, but today, you know, all of that's established, so this could move quickly. It could. So let me just explain. People who think that gold gives money its value are in la-la land. Right. Because you can't eat gold. You know, that's just another superstition. Uh, Like these made-up coins, these cryptocurrencies are what give money its value, and and they're going to lead to uh, massive commerce as opposed to the same ups and downs and crashes that we've already witnessed because they're nothing but 
manufactured tokens that people are speculating in. It's just like in uh, Holland in the 1700s, we had the, the tulip fever. There's a movie out there called Tulip Fever where people started speculating in tulips. So, And you can't speculate with ledger entries. So let me just get down to concretely how this works. Okay. The metaphor is loyalty rewards. Why? Because loyalty rewards monetize the excess capacity of businesses, just the way the sharing economy monetized the excess capacity of an empty room in someone's home or an idle car. So frequent flyer miles are backed by empty airline seats. Starbucks points are backed by empty cups of coffee. Hilton honors are backed by empty motel rooms. You you have to get that the revolutionary difference between money backed by either gold or debt or government promises to issue more money and what's called business scrip. S-C-R-I-P was the original paper money backed by business products and services. You could uh, get some scrip, some paper money working in the mining town and you would working in the mines and you would take it to the general store and they would accept it because the company would pay it off. I think it was the company store. Didn't the king put an end to that? That was before the revolution, our revolution. No, right? no, no. The, that's in the early days of capitalism is that was the first paper money before there was government issued money. Okay. In fact, in fact, this is important. It's a tiny detour. But when paper currency first came along, every bank had their own paper. Every state had their own paper currency. Many companies had their own paper currency. Now, that was completely dysfunctional. Yeah. So. When free enterprise is too competitive to function, it sets an industry standard. Imagine if you had 25 plugs and 25 outlets, that would be dysfunctional. So we set an industry standard for plugs and outlets, and that could be done by industry, not just by government. Now, in the case of the dollar, it was the U.S. dollar backed by gold and managed by the Federal Reserve. But a century later, along came Visa, And Visa was done completely by the private sector, by the banking industry. And they said, uh, this is worth explaining because it'll help make our model concrete to you. We're doing exactly what Visa did. They created a new money, uh, the electronic debit and credit. And our new money is the, theirs was an electronic dollar and ours is an electronic ledger dollar. They created a platform because there's money and then there's platforms that the money rides on. They created the credit card industry or the Visa platform, and we're creating the dual currency platform, again, to be a public utility. And we'll drill down on that at the end of this. Then they they created a stakeholder network. It was the banks, their customers as the cardholders, and the merchants. So those three is very parallel. We have a stakeholder network that is the financial services industry as the source of cash, the retailers, again, the merchants, whether they're public, private, or nonprofit, uh, the users. And then uh, we created one more stakeholder group that we call the sponsors, because somebody has to aggregate the users the way the banks aggregated the cardholders, and then report the rewardable activities. So now, 
Uh, community organizations sponsor the volunteers, schools sponsor the students, employers sponsor their employees. All of these are places where you can now earn dual currency rewards on top of cash paychecks. Um, the government sponsors anybody who uh, is getting a government check, social security, unemployment, welfare. So we've now we've got everybody where they normally get a paycheck or a government check, we've got them all dual, in dual currency earning. Now those are three out of the four uh, legs of the uh, visa model. The fourth is a set of rules or protocol. And again, think about the internet. If you don't follow the internet protocol, you can't even get on the internet. It's technological protocol. You follow it or you don't play. The visa system's the exact same thing, only it's commercial protocol. If you're a retailer, you follow the rules of the interchange. If you're a bank, you follow the rules of the interchange. If you're, and by the way, of course, you can't keep up with all this because I'm covering dozens of fields, right? Economics and commerce and, and uh, uh, entrepreneurship and the history of money, money innovation, and you know all these things that are not in the everyday conversation. But trust me, if people will read my our white papers and uh, look at our business models, we have a, a PayPal pitch deck uh, that shows how it works for financial services, a Target pitch deck that shows how it works for retailers, a community pitch deck. But again, if you had tried to figure out democracy under kings and queens, how many thousands of citizens-to-be really understood the new system before it was invented? Again, it's the whole paradigm shift dilemma. Yeah. It, and why, why we have a simple minimum viable product and early adopters, as simple as some volunteerism. Okay, so now um, those four areas, the new money, the new platform, the stakeholder network, and the operational rules or the protocol are the exact same thing we do now. The reason we use loyalty reward technology as the metaphor, the loyalty industry has been evolving. Um, it used to be that you could only earn one place and redeem at the place you earned it. So earn, spend at the airlines, earn frequent flying miles, redeem at the airlines. Today, you can spend at the grocery store, earn credits and redeem them at the gas station. I mean, there's all this interoperability today, which makes a cooperative system possible. Secondly, it used to be that you had to save up 100% rewards. Today, almost anybody can accept part cash, part rewards. All right, so those are mature technologies. We have two problems to solve to turn loyalty industry technology into universal dual currency cooperative technology. Number one, today it's all proprietary. You have, you, everybody's fighting everybody else. They're using their excess capacity to beat their competitors with loyalty rewards. So we build a cooperative version of the loyalty system where all the restaurants are pooling their excess capacity for the benefit of all the restaurant employees and all the uh, restaurant users, airlines. And it's hard to imagine a cooperative system, but that's what's wrong. Competition and cooperation are out of balance and therefore massive excess capacity goes to waste. Yeah. So now that's number one. We have to make all these competing millions and millions of 
local to global. That's one reason we can have overnight meeting of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals using free enterprise principles and not government spending. Why? Because we have the massive excess capacity inside of all these businesses across the globe, and we have the means of distributing it through the traditional financial infrastructure, not neighborhood currencies, which never scale. Nobody can show me a neighborhood currency on the planet that's even 10% of the economy of where it's used. Um, this can scale right up to the full excess capacity right in parallel with the dollar. All right. So one is it's got to be cooperative rather than competitive. Two is very simple and obvious. you got to reward more than consumer spending. If all you reward is consumer spending, whoever has the most money now gets the most rewards, right? So to review, that's why we want to reward community volunteerism that anybody can do, youth academic performance that any young person or even older returning students can do, uh, wellness activity, green activity. And they're actually little proprietary programs all over the country and all over the world doing these things. But again, they all have to scale through a common technology, just like when the visa system, uh, every bank had their own credit card, many companies had their own credit card, gas stations had their own credit card. The visa system created an industry standard that everybody can share. So we have the models. We have the model of the internet. We have the model of, um, of the loyalty rewards industry, and we can build this thing and scale it really literally at the pace of mobile apps and social media. So whereas 10 years ago, with just a fraction of the penetration it has in the economy today, the sharing economy built its own technology and scaled to millions of jobs and billions of dollars of new wealth. We would have seen that as a country and as a world as an exciting new model of monetizing excess capacity, an empty room in someone's home or an idle car. But because so many people lost their jobs when these new jobs came into the uh, economy, it didn't look like a win-win proposition at all. And it wasn't, but it could be. That's the whole point. We're turning win-lose competition over money into win-win cooperation to lift everybody up together. And again, Russ, your head should be spinning because I'm covering very quickly, yeah. you know, the dynamics of the internet, this whole subject called protocol. How is there self-governance? I'm from Minnesota. Let me give you one more example of self-governance because it's very exciting. In 1991, and people can ask for this essay as well, I wrote a obtuse titled essay called How Self-Help Groups and Computer Networks Are the Organizational Models for the Democratic Transformation of Society. What the hell could that mean? Computer chat rooms and a little bit of email was the level of the internet, right? So yeah. I was looking way into the future, what it could do. But we were very familiar. This is Minnesota, the land of 10,000 support groups. So Alcoholics <laughs> Anonymous, uh, you know, uh, drug addicts, anonymous gamblers, anonymous sex addicts, anonymous shoppers, anonymous debtors, anonymous, you know, we got it all. We're the land of 10,000 support groups, but there's no bureaucracy and there's no elections inside the 12 step movement. The phrase is our leaders are just trusted servants. They do not govern. So what you would call the protocol, the design features of the 12 step movement are the 12 steps the medical protocol, and the 12 traditions, the operations protocol. So now think about this, the 12-step movement, which is global, countries can be at war with each other and people can still go back and forth attending 12-step groups 
you know, in other countries, just like uh, visas accepted all over the world. You know, yeah. there are these things that are stable even when the economies are unstable. And so the the 12-step movement is actually a non-cash healthcare system. No money changes hands, no doctors with credentials, uh, no buildings, no paperwork, no technology, and um, no medications. And yet the recovery is just as good and the recidivism is just as low as if you were sitting at Betty Ford paying $50,000, someone sitting in a church basement going, hi, my name is Bob. Now, why is that relevant? Because we've been building workarounds for the broken economy for all of history. This is a, happens to be a workaround for mainstream healthcare, but um, barter's a workaround, volunteerism's a workaround, uh, uh, in-kind contributions to the community out of excess capacity is a workaround. So people have been doing all these things to try to get by when cash hasn't been available, but they're all just sort of one-off partial solutions. This dual currency pricing, accounting, and transaction settlement system is the first attempt. And just think it's going to be as primitive as Visa was when it was born or as... Um, the internet was when it was born, but it'll quickly morph based on the pace of, of technological innovation and the fact that there's a profit motive built in. We will see the ability for a free enterprise innovation to sweep the world and lift everyone up together. Uh, what do you have left for a question? <laughs> or uh, a question or 10, should I, I, I say? I, I think probably, I probably this deserves a couple nights around a campfire with a Guinness. <laughs> To really, yeah, to well, really like that's to, keep poking that's at it. it. I mean, <clears throat> this isn't most of this is not a popular discussion yet in no, the it's... economy, but that's how inventions come along, sure, you know. And, and that's why they say, you know, uh, most change goes through three phases. This is Schopenhauer first, it is ridiculed, then it is violently opposed, yeah. and finally, it's accepted as self evident. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't have to be either ridiculed or. Uh, violently opposed as a business innovation. It just needs to be understood and scaled. And that's the job of a minimum viable product and early adopters. Usually I give quite a bit of time to explaining that, but I know we're running out of time here. One of the benefits of doing this as a podcast is people can go back and listen to it as many times as they want and they can rewind. And so that's good. And, and hopefully they'll reach out to me on LinkedIn, Joel Hodroff, J-O-E-L-H-O-D-R-O-F-F. Yep. Um, I'm the only one in money innovation. <laughs> this is a time when many institutions and many paradigms need to be challenged and can be shifted. We've gone through a couple already, and I mentioned a couple people who are involved with two other areas sure. who are currently trying to make that happen. They're taking this as an opportunity to make that happen. So I'm always trying to learn more, and this is an area that I'm very weak in. For me, it's quite a challenge just trying to keep up with you. But there will be people who get it, probably deeper than I do, and and, and so those are... Those are the people that we want to connect you with. Part of the reason you are here is because you are a great example of someone who has passion. You have still, you are still optimistic. You are exhibiting a huge 
level of energy and you've been working on this for a long time, you very easily could have been so disappointed in, in maybe lack of progress. And even if that's, maybe that's not even true. Maybe you've seen tremendous progress, but well, it's been, it's been very uneven, but finally so, the technology is everywhere. Right. So these are really important traits for our entrepreneurs and our other business owners. So you know, Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And so you are an inspiration to those people. And there may be some people out there who have been trying to get a business started for years, haven't done it yet. There may be somebody else who has, in fact, I can think of a couple of people in particular that I've been working with who have a great idea. They've been working on it and working on it. They've been struggling with all that self-doubt, all that internal dialogue, you know, all those yep. people that are saying like, maybe you should just go get a job or whatever <laughs> good advice they have. And we've covered all this before. I mean, those are, those are friends and family usually who care a lot about us. They don't want us to get hurt. Um, their yep. natural yep. serpent brain is them wanting to stay safe and to keep people they love safe. Right. So yep. there's a Absolutely. lot involved there, but part of the reason you're here is because you have this uh, groundbreaking idea. You believe that it's something that is going to be uh, hugely significant for the world in so many different ways. You have not given up. You're still plugging away on it. And this could possibly be the breakthrough time where this can happen, right? This is the this is the lucky moment where preparation meets opportunity. I'm certainly grateful that you're willing to take a chance on a, a cutting edge idea like this and and uh, to promote it because without champions like you, you know, we're just uh, Johnny Appleseed going yeah. along planting seeds. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. We, we've had some pilots that couldn't scale for lack of technology. I should have sure. said that at the beginning. Yeah. We have a, a sister effort in England right now that's in an incubator uh, focused on volunteer rewards. We're in discussions with the yeah. city of Minneapolis uh, to pilot and All some good. technology providers. Yeah. So we're yeah we're it's sort of, we're in restart mode. We haven't even branded the new company and the new uh, money. So I identify, I identify with what you're doing, Joel, because I'm in a similar situation. Okay. So I'm an entrepreneur since I was a kid. Um, I was, you know, running a business, selling stuff in high school. And then after, even when in college, I was out hustling. Um, I went full-time 24, opened a brick and mortar graphics company. Like I did all that stuff. I I had very little outside uh, influence in terms of running a business. I had to learn everything myself. And then it was at the library then, right? Or a couple people who maybe sort of told you something, but they, but because you were a competitor, they would only show you so much. Right. And I met many of those older, older people at that time. Entrepreneurship is a whole sector of the economy now. Well, yeah, it used to be, yeah, but I was shunned. (laughs) <laughs> I was an artist. I was uh, uh, an entrepreneur, and I was I uh, a skinny kid with acne. So I, I didn't. Really, <laughs> I didn't fit in anywhere. So, anyways. So, but my point is, I really identify with you, right? Because I've been plugging away with my businesses, and and what I'm doing now. Um, this is sort of like maybe a third. The podcast is a third of it. My coaching is another third, and then yep. the training aspect, or what I'm calling going boldly, you. Uh, is a is another third, but this is the first time in my life where I've had the time and opportunity to be able to put together everything that I have, knowledge and wisdom and energy, and scale it. What I've always done in the past, I've never had the opportunity to scale, either because what I was offering wasn't scalable or the technology wasn't available. 
So uh, same, I mean, same here. Exactly. So yeah, and I'm again much smaller, less significant, possibly. <laughs> you know what I'm doing, right? Um, hopefully, I would have big impact with new entrepreneurs and business owners and people who have a passion. Hopefully, I have and able to have an impact that will help them make their lives everything they've always dreamed it could be, right? To most fulfilling possible. So that's what I'm trying to do. But you have uh, <laughs> something that could go global very quickly. If the will is Very there, quickly. right? Okay, the so the infrastructure is there. Right. Yep. Yep. So there we go. Okay. So we've kind of we've kind of wrapped all that stuff up. I told you why it's important to me, how I identify with it. Now we want to get to this is not a left versus right. Right. So if people simply look back at the last couple of years, all the uh, acrimony and fighting over the economy and over culture and over diversity, equity, and inclusion, and notice that uh, if all of that money, if all of that media time, if all of that canvassing time had been poured into fixing the economy, we could be standing on completely new and higher ground. Well, why isn't it ever? Because people legitimately, when they see the economy broken, have differing opinions on how to fix it. Now, interestingly, We don't have differing opinions on how to fix a car or how to fix a computer. We, an expert fixes it. So why is there no expertise that can actually show how to fix the economy? We can't unite and mobilize because we have these huge differences of opinion that break out into left versus right. So allow me to explain how this transcends left versus right and could get everybody on the same page, except for the diehards who love the fight and who hate and make enemies out of people who disagree with them. So, and that's not the majority of people in our country or the majority of people in the world. So we can actually carry the world to this new higher cooperative ground. So number one, for the conservatives and the libertarians, this model is 100% voluntary. It doesn't require any government legislation. It comes into the world as a business model. Number two, it is 100% self-funding. It doesn't need a government or a charitable subsidy. It's run just like the payments industry, which is a highly mature, evolved, efficient industry um, off of a transaction fee. And there are many different players playing different roles in the payments industry, all getting a little piece of the transaction fee. So if it's voluntary and if it's self-funding and if it's business-led, market-based and profit-driven and not a threat to the free enterprise system, but an improvement to it, we can have the conservatives and the libertarians on board. Well, what about the leftists, the socialists, the liberals, the greens? Number one, it's immediate and not trickle down. The wasted wealth, the excess capacity sits everywhere and can be delivered just as fast as the mobilization for World War II (laughs) times a thousand because we didn't have any of today's technology 70 years ago. 18 months, 70 years ago. Can you imagine what that means today? And again, the sharing economy showed how fast things can move. Every new app or every popular TikTok uh, viral thing shows how fast things can move across the world. That's number one, immediate, not trickle down. Number two, closing disparities, not through higher taxes, not through deeper debt, not through firing somebody to make room for somebody who's historically been uh, 
economically disadvantaged, but simply by spreading new wealth and closing those disparities. I use the example of paying stay-at-home moms and dads, not with tax dollars, getting everybody fed, not with government programs like a welfare system and a food shelf system and a food stamp system, but simply this new business model and this new currency. So closing disparities overnight. And then number three, sustainable. Everybody has a stake in the environment, but it's le- it's identified more as a, a leftist issue, which is unfortunate. Uh, the military were the first ones in to combating global warming. So we know that it's by itself, the environment is beyond left versus right. But you see, to be able to deliver all these promised benefits without traditional growth, that's the breakthrough in economics. We're already 10 times overbuilt So we don't need more colleges. We don't need more restaurants. We don't need, we don't have to tell nobody they can do traditional innovation, traditional growth, but it's pretty silly to start another competing business in a crowded space so that you can fight for money when now ledger economics says, oh, that's easy. You measure available excess capacity. You measure unmet needs, you make the match. Why would we have unemployment? You measure work to do in communities, you measure unemployed people and their skills, and you make the match. You see, there's no need for unemployment when there's plenty of work to do, raising up communities, doing green uh, sustainability activity, doing global economic development. I mean, there's plenty of work, even as we shorten the work week and let technology do its job rather than chasing money longer and harder and faster at the pace of technology. I'm just going to use the this ridiculous, ever-growing work week to show how broken the system is because I've said every advance in technology should raise the quality of life across the board, shorten working hours across the board, and reduce damage to the environment across the board. So everybody knows the metaphor of the boiling frogs. You drop a frog in a pot of boiling water, it knows what's going on and it hops out and survives. You put a frog in tepid water and turn up the heat and pretty soon you've got a cooked frog. So how does that apply to economics and the work week? If someone had said to everybody 20 years ago, guess what? You're going to give up in 10 years. You're going to give up your family dinners and it's not going to be a problem. It's just going to be the way things are and you're going to live with it. And because this is based on technology and it's speeding up in another five years, you're going to give up your family weekends. And if you don't like it, fine, we'll get somebody to replace you. And then in another three years, you're going to give up your family vacations. Well, we would have said, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. This is a family-centered country. We would never do anything like that. Well, look out there. And what have we done? Because it came on slowly and nobody questioned it because nobody's questioning the big economic picture that we should be working shorter and shorter hours rather than longer and longer hours. And there'll be people getting up on soapboxes saying, you know, Joel's some kind of a communist talking about shortening working hours. But, you know, all I've ever touted in this entire podcast is free enterprise business principles using creativity and innovation to solve problems with better business models and our whole historic example of money innovation through history. So, Russ, thank you for this time together. It's been fantastic. I know we need to do something, right? 
this could be this could be it. I hope our listeners, I hope there are a couple of those special listeners out there who are going to jump on board with you and you know, maybe there's something that they can do to uh, to help make this uh, a reality. Right? You bet. There's lots people can do. For starters, they can just forward your podcast. Yeah, forward it to a friend. Forward it to that family where both adults are having to work full time to be able to cover all the costs, <laughs> and they still and they still don't uh, get more than a week vacation. Uh huh. Yeah. Or, or forward it to some of these uh, billionaires who are actually putting billions of dollars into trying to fix things. Unfortunately, in the same old way. Same old way. Yeah. You same could do, old way. You'd use a couple so, um, billion. Yeah, Russ, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you. I'm grateful for this time together oh, to have met welcome. you. And- All right. Remember, if you want to get a hold of Joel, you can find him on LinkedIn. It's Joel Hodroff, H-O-D-R-O-F-F. And probably if you Google him and uh, Tom Fisher's name, you can find uh, where that chapter in the book exists. And I imagine, uh, I imagine you have a few pages if they Google you. If some interesting uh, things pop up. There's a there's an awful lot out there. The book is published by Intech Open, entitled Investment Strategies in Emerging New Trends in Finance. We stick out like a sore thumb because the rest of it is traditional economics. Our chapter, chapter eight, is titled From Money Centered to People and Planet Centered Ledger Economics, Leveraging the Hidden Wealth of Underutilized Productive Capacity. Beautiful. I'm sure we have somebody out there. We have many people out there who want to know more about this, so that's a good place to go. Also, look up Joel, as I said, on LinkedIn, uh, Joel Hodroff, H-O-D-R-O-F-F. There might be another Joel Hodroff on there, but uh, you'll know his smiling face probably when you see it connected to economics. And uh, I want to thank Joel for, <laughs> for being on this very long episode of Going Boldly. He is a man who is going boldly, and uh, our time right now after the pandemic, or as it's w- waning, is going to be a great opportunity for some major paradigm shifts. All right, we're out. That concludes another episode of Going Boldly. I hope you were entertained and you discovered at least one nugget of wisdom or advice that you can put into action immediately. Or maybe you received some inspiration from today's episode. And I'm certain you know at least one person who needs this podcast. Please share it with them. You might be the important link that will change their life for the better. Subscribing means you will not miss an episode. And it will make it easier for me to schedule guests because I can show them that the audience is growing. So please subscribe. It will benefit us all. Let me know how I can make this show even better. Leave a comment and send me a DM. I read everyone personally, and I do my best to respond to each and every one. As a thank you, I'll be awarding prizes. And to keep you on your toes, the winners will be randomly selected from names I find in the comments, shares, DMs, and from the list of subscribers. Prizes might be Going Boldly merch or products supplied by my guests or just something random and fun. But you have to comment, share, DM, or subscribe to be eligible to win. A special thanks to Brenna Swanger at Waverly Manor Studios for our great theme music. And finally, thanks for listening. Go boldly, keep at it, and wash your hands.